True strength comes from diverse and inclusion. It makes kids better, families better, it makes the game better. We are not done because the work is not done. We have barriers to break and knock down opportunities to give. Those are the words of Willie O'Ree, who in 1958 broke the color barrier as the first black hockey player in the National Hockey League. 60 years later, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. O'Ree remains an ambassador of the game and a pioneer for equality. His story and his voice, along with the stories and voices of other influential black players, front office members, and fans of the game of hockey, all deserve a platform as we promote diversity and inclusion within the sport. You're listening to Kane's Cast, and this is Amplifying Black Voices. Welcome to another episode of Amplifying Black Voices with Michael Smith. I'm Mike Maniscalco, and today our guest is a fan who worked himself into a situation where he is now an ambassador for the game of hockey for the Carolina Hurricanes. We'll be talking with Mike Whiting. You might know him as, as Big Mike at PNC Arena, but uh, the story that uh, he is going to, to tell us and, and share with us, uh, we cannot wait to share with you. I know that a lot of Canes fans are very familiar. You know Mike right away, not just by uh, coming to PNC Arena and seeing Mike, but if you've ever listened to the games, you can hear his horn from everywhere. Yeah. Uh, he is, and even now, he's uh, he's still a part of uh, the presentation, even with a uh, limited amount of fans in the building. Uh, Big Mike is perched up on the 300 level, uh, blowing his horn, getting some chants yep. going inside uh, PNC Arena, uh, and just rallying uh, the crowd around a really good hockey team. But as, again, we continue to um, take some time to talk about you know the situation of diversity, stories of, of how people have become part of the Carolina Hurricanes organization or their involvement with hockey, you know, Mike is truly a guy who carved out a place for himself that was not there in the NHL yeah. you know, 20-plus years ago when the Carolina Hurricanes found themselves in North Carolina, and then when they officially came into Raleigh, uh, he, he made himself a part of the organization. And again, it's one of these stories where you, you like to hear it, and then you want to find out a little bit more about it, about making hockey accessible, but not just that, knocking down certain barriers that people put up for sports or for whatever they have going on. And he's a guy who clearly knocked down a lot of those barriers. Yeah, he knocked down barriers, and he's helping to grow the game too. And that's a big part of, of his role as an ambassador for the team. Uh, and it just fits his bubbly, warm personality too. Uh, you know, he's he's someone who um, 
in normal times. Of course, you could stop on the the concourse and and have a lengthy chat with them. Um, and I thought our our discussion with them to, today was uh, very illuminating, uh, very insightful, um, and I think you will enjoy it. So please enjoy this conversation with Mike Whiting. So Mike Whiting, who has become synonymous with fans, fandom, Kaniacs, making some noise at PNC Arena. Mike, first off, we really appreciate you taking the time. And, and you know, the, the big question first is, how did you get involved and become such a, a huge fan of a sport that I can imagine probably wasn't one that you were watching too much when you were growing up? How did you become such a huge hockey fan? Well, I, I grew up, I was, you know, I grew up in Cary and Raleigh and I was a big NC State fan and the Canes came to town. Um, occasionally I would see on TV, um, you know, a Philadelphia Washington game. Um, but that was about it around here. Um, I used to go to Ice Caps games when they were here. And, you know, I went to my first game, um, got hooked, and that was back in 1999 and been a big fan ever since that's really the one i think through line for for every fan that comes into hockey is once you go once it's that that's really all you need to to get you hooked to the game what what was it about the game of hockey where when you saw it live for the first time you were like oh yeah i'm in on this <laughs> it was um different sounds i mean that sounds kind of weird but the sounds of the game um the speed, the players, the skill, and and being something fairly new, it was intriguing. Um, didn't know a lot about the rules at first, but um, once I went, I just wanted to keep going back and learning more about the game. And I mean, once you go, what you know when you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the old uh, the old catchphrase for the Hurricanes: "You'll yes. know when you go." And it's it's so true though, uh, because uh, I, I once you go once and. Um, the, the sport, for whatever, doesn't translate the same on television. Um, I think it's gotten better over the years yeah. with, with high-definition yes. television and you're able to see the puck more. Um, but uh, there's something about the atmosphere. And, and really, Mike, you've become an integral part of that atmosphere over the years. So how, how has your role uh, with the team sort of grown and evolved from you know being a part of uh, the Storm Squad to now being uh, an ambassador for the team? Um. Being, excuse me, I started on the Storm Squad in 2002. Um, you know, it wasn't real organized like it is now. It was pretty much you go to the game, didn't really have responsibilities. You just walked around doing some cheers, talking to people. Um, then when Doug Wharf and then uh, John Chase came in, they really, um, or after, sorry, after Doug Wharf, when John Chase came in, they really uh, stepped it up. Uh, nothing against Doug. Uh, <laughs> so, Doug, if you're listening, I love you. You're great. Um, but there became more uh, more things to do in the game with the promotions and fan development, fan interactions. Um, so after about, I don't know, how long, 12, 13 years on the Storm Squad, um, it moved me to ambassador. A lot of the same responsibilities, but also more um, – I get to be more intimate with the fans, um, get to know them um, during the game. You know, if I don't have to be somewhere set, I can go around like in the Doug days and uh, <laughs> uh, talk to people, um, 
you know, engage them on social media, which I'm getting better at Twitter. I'm nowhere like you guys, <laughs> but I'm getting there. I'm getting there. No, that's a good um, thing. Don't be like us yes, on I was, was going to say, if you, um, if you know what's best, you just avoid Twitter. Exactly, all together. There you go. <laughs> but, Mike, the, I think the one thing that everybody notices is the, the passion that you have. And as you say, you, know, you grew up, you went to some Ice Caps games. There were a few games on TV. But now you're the guy when there is a big penalty kill. And if I can kind of make this even more of a, a personal story here mm-hmm. – um, Mike, for the four years that I was in the corner as the the reporter for the Canes on TV, was was right there, and you were the guy who knew that. All right, that was a big penalty kill. Let's make some. Let's make some some you know noise here. Noise, yeah. Make, make some yeah, noise, noise, as they would say. We wouldn't have to wait for it to be pumped on the video board to make some noise. You were in front <laughs> of that. Like you started picking up on all those things. And is yes. it something that you've noticed also the fans in this area through the years pick up on it? You don't have to prompt them as much as maybe you did even five years ago is, is what you, you exactly. don't have to do today. Like, but there was, um, yeah, there, uh, fans are definitely becoming more, um, into, you know, that was a big kill. That was a big hit. Um, you know, good, you know, a little minor stick play or something that, um, can turn into something big. Uh, one example last night, the Nashville game, there was a, um, Puck going down the ice. Aho was in a race with some Nashville player and didn't look like it should be icing, but, you know, all 3,000 people in there, like, booing because they knew it probably shouldn't have been icing. Yeah. Um, you know, that may not happen 10 years ago, 8, 9, 10 years ago. Um, people, be, you know, play on, play on, next play. But um, the crowd and the fans are definitely yeah. more into the rules and the, the flow of the game and – you know, the little intricacies that happen. One of the things that also stands out and one of the things where uh, Michael and I are have been lucky enough to do this in, in this podcast series, you don't look like the typical fan. I don't have to share that with anybody for <laughs> folks who don't <laughs> exactly. know. So is it, as we've talked about you becoming a fan, how much do you think that that breaks down some borders for some people who weren't sure hockey is for them? Or do, mm-hmm. was there some resistance at first? Like what was your experience as, as you've wound your way through this from, you know, just being a, a super fan to being an ambassador for this team? Are there, there are stories that you can relate where, you know, somebody walks in and their guard does get dropped because, all right, this guy's into the sport. I, mm-hmm. I, I know I can get into it. Or maybe even some, some stories that aren't along the lines of, of that pleasant. Yeah, um, I remember one example back in 02 during the playoffs before I started working. I was, uh, we were playing Toronto, um, 02 playoffs, and there was a, I was sitting next to a Toronto fan. The whole game, he was just on and on. And then there was a, um, I was clapping after a whistle on the ice. He said, You know, you don't even know what that is. Do you know anything about hockey? I said, That was actually a two line pass. Which is gone th- from the game, thankfully. Yes, thank but uh, <laughs> um, so I think he, that guy just took one look at me and like this guy doesn't know what's going on. He's just on the bandwagon. Um, shut him up pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I talked to people. Um, a lot of you know people of color about hockey, and a lot of the attitude is that that's all you know. We're not out there. It's all white people playing. Um. And I explained that, you know, a majority, yes, but there are also a lot of um, other non-whites playing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, 
he's just an example. I think Bill Gurren, I think he was like, um, I can't remember his nationality, but um, that was one example I used back when he was playing, when people asked me about different players. Um, and of course, um, Willie O'Ree, I uh, tell them about him. Um, the crowd is definitely getting more, I think I'm jumping all over the place now. The crowd's definitely getting more diverse and I do see a lot more people come in and, um, and I try to actively, if I'm out in public and I have my cane stuff on, I'll try to, you know, chat up people, try to come to get to a game, you know, more minorities. Um, and some of them have come and uh, some have actually become like season ticket members after just, you know, randomly talking to them and they didn't know anything about it. Um, so I think the more we get the word out that hockey is for everyone, the better off we're going to be. But that's the challenge. Um, you just got to get them into the arena or, you know, at least get them involved outside the arena, make them want to go. And uh, we'll definitely help them to grow the game. In the last 20 years, say, um, how have you seen the game grow in terms of that hockey is for everyone message? How far has the league come in the last 20 years? And, and, and how much farther does it still have to go in order to make some of those inroads uh, in some communities? Um, I think the, the key is uh, the, the game is definitely growing in um, popularity in a minority population. Like I'm a member of a couple of Facebook groups. Like one is um, black guys and girls who love hockey. Mm. Um, you know, things like that to uh, get more people involved. Um, still a lot of work to do, I'm sure, um, on and off the ice in order to be more inclusive. And I think a, a big barrier is definitely the cost yep. of hockey. If you're somewhere, <clears throat> excuse me, in, you know, inner city part of anywhere in New York, um, the kids, they're, what they're going to do is get a basketball, go play hoops. It's cheap. It's free. It's fun. Um Hockey, you know, you got to have the skates and stick and the pads and everything. But, you know, like the learn to play program or first goal program, the, the Canes and other teams are doing um, in the Capital City crew. We need more of that around the entire league to get into the underserved populations and inner city populations. So um, they grow up and become fans or they can be the next great player. You never know. Um, you just got to get into the into the people, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. Um, and that that definitely helps to grow the game of hockey. We're uh, talking with Mike Whiting. He is the Carolina Hurricanes fan ambassador uh, and a great representation of uh, how, as you said, once you go, you know uh, about uh, the game and gets there. But let, let's find out a little bit more about you. You grow up in, in Raleigh and Cary. You're a big NC State fan. Were you always a sports fan? Was it something where – you know, if there was a game on, you were going to watch it. You were going to you were going to go out and play. How did the how did the passion for sports spark in you? I think um, back in nineteen, I'm dating myself here. Back in eighty three, when the Wolfpack won the national title in basketball, the last one. We got more coming soon. Don't worry. <laughs> um, that kind of hooked me, and I was a young kid then, and I just started watching everything. I used to watch a lot of baseball. Um, Atlanta Braves were always on around here. You know, Dale Murphy and all them guys, you know, growing up going to Durham Bulls games at the old ballpark. 
it's, it's pretty much college sports around here. Um, there was no pro teams until, you know, we got the Hornets and Panthers and the Hurricanes, of course. Um, but on t- if it's just something on TV, I typically watched it. Um, I still do that. I'll flip through the um, TV on, I think, Saturday mornings. They have, like, the Premier League soccer on. I watch that for a little bit. Um, doesn't matter. I just big sports fan. I guess I always pretty much have been. Uh, but nothing compares to um, the game of hockey, especially live. Yeah. It, it's, it's incredible. Sorry to cut you off. Uh, you, you mentioned college sports and – uh, that's one of the, I think, unique parts about this fan base, right, is that um, you have these these three different colleges who are all very uh, staunch rivals of one another, uh, but then they all come together and unify as one uh, in cheering for the Hurricanes, and, and I think that makes for a unique fan base, right? It definitely does. Um, I recall five or six years ago when Duke and UNC were playing on a Saturday night Big game, you know, both ranked top five, I think, in the country, top ten. But we had a sold-out house in the PNC Arena. And there were people wearing their, um, you know, the Carolina gear, the Duke gear, to show the support for the team. But they decided to come to the hockey game instead of watching the um, their big rival game on TV. And that, that says a lot about the fans and the passion of the fans and everybody coming together from all the college teams to cheer on one, um, one team, the Carolina Hurricanes. Mike, I, I, I don't want to go too far with a reach on this, but as you're a fan of, of this club and others are there, how much does this area, because NC State fans do not want to go to Thanksgiving dinner with North Carolina fans who are family <laughs> if, you know, yes. Carolina beats them in football that year and basketball and that goes in. But like what, what Michael just said, this is a team – and, you know, it's a sport where it, it unifies the group because, you know, it's, this is something that wasn't here, you know, for 50, 60, you know, 100 years for playing. And can we – can we? I, I know that I'm asking you a really big question here, but can can hockey use this area and, and what you have become to represent as this is what hockey can be. We can have differences. We can not like each other, you know, Monday through Friday because of what school you went to. And when I say not like, not in a vicious matter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we can have differences, but hockey can melt those differences for us and, and bring us together. Do you see, like, that's what, what this hockey club has done in this area. Maybe some of the, the fences aren't as so high for sports fans in this area because there is a common ground team that everybody can yes. can cheer for. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, the Canes do things like the College Colors Night, trying to get the, um, all the colleges, uh, their fans coming out and supporting. But, uh, you know, like you said, we bring everybody together. Um, it's a cheer for this one entity. It's uh, be a force to reckon with. And those Thanksgiving dinners won't be so bad <laughs> once your team loses if you have the Carolina Hurricanes in common. So the Hurricanes are out there like saving family relationships. You know, just by being here. <laughs> so true. It's so true. That might be the next motto for the club. Family <laughs> relationships. Exactly. Uh, Mike, uh, I want to take it back to when, um, to when you first started coming to games, and then you, you know, became uh, a part of the Storm Squad. Did you encounter at all, uh, you know, any? pushback because of your skin color not from inside the organization but from but from fans did you did it ever 
did you ever feel like, um, you know, fans were, were kind of giving you the side eye or something just because um, you don't look like uh, the prototypical hockey fan, I guess? I think in the beginning, <clears throat> I probably noticed some of that. Nobody really came up to me and said anything to my face, but I think I noticed during the games, um, definitely the girls were getting more attention um, for <clears throat> different reasons too. But um, they would, I could tell some people were like, what's, what's he doing here? What, is he some kind of like prop or something? First couple of years, but um, after that, I just tended to ignore it all. And um, they can think what they want, but um, I, I really don't have that feeling any longer. Yeah, and it's. I think a part of it too is just your personality is yeah. is so uh, welcoming and and, <laughs> and warm that it's it's impossible. Like if someone came up to you and and started having a conversation, mm-hmm. they're they're gonna instantly love you and understand <laughs> your passion for the game because that's just your personality. So I think it is a lot of it. Um, you know, as we continue to grow the game. Uh, is a lot of it just about having those conversations with people and 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 just getting to to know one another on a on a human level? Yes, um, you know, one conversation can go a long way. I've I've stopped um, and you know talking to random people on a concourse uh, before the games. Just I don't know how to put this. Um, somebody I just look at them. Typically, I wouldn't be somebody I'd hang out with. But I'll go up and talk to them, and, um, you know, we get to know each other. And every game they come back and come back, and you get more friendly with them. Uh, but definitely that face-to-face talking to people on contact is uh, very, very helpful. Mike, to that, and, and I guess maybe the follow-up would be, do you feel that, you know, you see this fan, and you're like, you're not sure they're going to engage with me, so I've got to be the one who starts yes. a, a conversation that way. Is that is that your thought? Whereas, I mean, I hate to put it in these terms, if – you look like the prototypical hockey fan. There would mm-hmm. be a conversation right away, but you feel that if, if there's going to be a conversation, I have to start it. I'm going to initiate it. That is correct. I'll, um, people start walking by and we kind of look at each other, and I can tell at that point they're not going to say anything. So, you know, I'll stop and say something to them, hey, or whatever. And sometimes they'll, you know, just, hey, way back. And sometimes they'll turn back around and we'll have a little conversation. Um, it's definitely making a first contact um, very important. And, you get to know so many fans and just by doing that and become great friends with a lot of them. Is this something, and I, I don't want to put this on the, how you've changed from this, but do you notice the impact and the change that maybe you've made on the fan base here where people are now, you know, where you'd be maybe hesitant to talk to, to somebody who's not in your, your click or your group where, this mm-hmm. fan base, everybody does seem to talk to everybody in this fan base. Do you look at that and, and feel there's a small part of what I've done these past, you know, 19, 20 years, uh, longer than that, has become a part of this? Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> I have a goal to uh, talk to at least 100 people every game, not just high, but, you know, say at least a few words, which I didn't always accomplish that, but um, especially now, but, um, you know, when things are, going back to normal. Um, I definitely try to talk to around a hundred people a game. And I do, I do have a, I do feel that I have helped the fan base kind of come together and as one. Um, When I see people in the stands, like I may have given them some tickets to a game, you you know, first one's free. 
And then uh, they keep coming back. And <laughs> um, so I think I have a small part in that. Yeah, and and I think you know, in our in saying prototypical hockey fan, I, I start to think of that, and I'm like, well, that's not you know, obviously the prototypical hockey fan we want just to be a human. It yeah. doesn't matter their skin yes. color. Yeah. But at the same time. I think it is important to talk about skin color. That's why we're doing this series to amplify voices, to amplify stories like yours, because it is important. It is important that uh, that you have representation, that you show representation, that when uh, younger black kids come into this arena uh, and see someone like you uh, leading the charge for, for fan chants and, and passion and, mm-hmm. and fandom, that they say, I'm welcome here. And I think that's extremely important, right? Oh, I agree. Um, you know, growing up, I grew up in Cary. Um, back before it's a sprawling metropolis it is today. And there were not many black families there. Um, so if I went somewhere, there may be like five black kids in my school and they all live, they were bust in from um, downtown Raleigh. Uh, there may have been a few more than that, but, um, most places I went, it was mainly white people uh, growing up. Um, so when I, if I did go somewhere, we had, if I saw some more, um, you know, black people, um, I did feel more comfortable going in, um, be it a store, a restaurant, or a party, or a school function, anything like that. So um, I'm glad I can be there for other people to have that same feeling. Mike, and, and this goes back to something you brought up about the, the faces – on the ice and in the game and how prohibitive the cost is, you know, not just, you know, for, for inner city, but almost for everybody. It seems like now, yes. like, you know, hockey is pricing itself into a huge stratosphere to, if you want to play, but yes, for fans, is there a, a message? Is there something more that the, the league can do or other leagues can do to, to get the game into you know, places where it isn't traditionally there, like the inner city, or or maybe even, you know, you go way out into in, in North Carolina, you go to rural areas. And like you say, first mm-hmm. first one's free and just get yep. somebody into the game. Even if people are like, I've never seen it or I don't know anything about it. Is the NHL doing enough? Is there more that they can do to get to this fan base, to get to people who feel like, well, this isn't a, a sport for me because I don't know anything about it. Is there more that the league can do to engage, you know, people of color in other communities? I think um, this will be more on a team by team basis, but I, um, I send John Chase random emails at like three or four in the morning occasionally. <laughs> and one of them I sent him was, you know, if you go to like, for example, when, um, just say there's a product that promises uh, it's like, the, like an infomercial type thing. Um, if you could go into a neighborhood and bring, you know, bring, maybe bring a player to, um, you know, pack a hundred pe- so people in there, bring a player in there, show like a highlight video or stuff and pump them up and then talk to them. Like you're marketing the game to them, and, you know, maybe have them sign up to get a pair of tickets to come to a game Um you got to have that, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Engagement. The, um, yes, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> you got to have the engagement um, in different communities to get people excited about it. Um, I imagine just having a big old movie screen of people sitting there and, you know, a player or two um, showing the hype videos like the show at the arena. And then just have people talk to them, answer questions, 
um, have somebody in there maybe explain a few basic rules and bring them out to a game. And I think that's a, that that could really get a lot of people, a lot more people coming out. The other part of it too, and, and let's go to the, the players on the ice, how impactful is it for a young Mike Whiting or a fan out there to see a goaltender like Kevin Weeks? You know, you see somebody who looks like you. One of the things that, that Michael and I, one of the themes that keeps coming up on, on this subject is people can't believe it until they see it. You know, I can't yes. believe I can be a hockey player in the NHL until I see someone like me. You know, people have to be the first or fans in the game, like you said, feel more comfortable. You know, a, a fan coming in from the city feels more comfortable. They see you when they come through the door. But what does it do for young kids, a young Mike Whiting? Take me back to that guy. When there is a guy who's on the ice like Kevin Weeks, who's not just you know, a guy in uniform, but a stud player and, and goalie. He was part of that run to the Stanley Cup Finals yes. in 02. What is what is a player like that? Does that have a lasting impact on on young athletes and, and young people in a community like that? I definitely think it does, um, especially like, you know, have a, the black kids in there, like you were saying, have a black athlete to look up um, to mainly white sport. Uh, actually, Kevin Weeks had given me a bunch of autographs like postcards of him and um, I would take him around and give him out to um, even in the community. If I saw a black kid, and a, you know, with a family, whatever, I talked to him about hockey and stuff. And then I give him that little card, the autograph, Kevin Weeks. And they're like, wow, you know, white people do play hockey. So again, you just have to, um, you know, be able to show examples to the kids that they can do it. If they want to do it. They can do it. I um if I can see your shirt correctly, it's the the We Skate for Equality shirt. Uh, yep, oh, yes. there it is. There it is. Um, looking back uh, on the time in the bubble last year and kind of the tipping point in the nation of conversations about race, what you know? How inspired were you to see you know the actions of the the Hockey Diversity Alliance? or the Western Conference teams, you know, coming together uh, in support of one another. What, how inspired were you by that, uh, that the NHL and that these players were, were taking a stand and were actively participating uh, in a conversation that was, was really reaching a boiling point in the nation? I was very happy to um, see them doing that. Of course, there were a lot of fans who were like, oh, what are y'all doing? Y'all are like the NFL bowing down to um pressure and all that but i did i like to see the um the way the nhl did it and the players and the uh team showing support for what was going on you know making the shirts like this and then the hockey diversity alliance um you know it's a lot of um it's all they just need to follow up on it can't just be a one-time thing hey, here's what's going on right now so let's you know get out there and show our support but it needs to keep going and going and going it's not a one and done. Can't be a one and done. How tough are those conversations to have, though? And it, I think this we can circle back to the conversations you have at PNC Arena when everybody is allowed back here. You know where mm -hmm. where you are engaging. You know, not everybody wants to have this, but how important is it, Mike, for us to sit down and talk? And, and look, Michael and I might have not even a one hundredth of an idea of, of some of the things that you go through mm -hmm. that we take for granted, and. So when I say how how important are these conversations, even if they're awkward, how important is yes. it to have it or at least start it and, and be like, all right, 
I'm I'm gonna find out. I'm gonna ask and and go from from there, and and then we can maybe get a little bit further down the road. And and we it's 2021. We should be way further down the road, I think, than what we are. But yeah, you know what what can we do to help push a little bit further with with a conversation or a or even a starter for a conversation to get this going that way. I tell you, those individual conversations are so important. I'm um, I'm a preschool teacher, or I am right now on my break. Um, but I was talking when all this was going on last summer. I was talking to one of our um, parents. You know, just randomly, she asked me uh, how I was doing. Um, basically, I had um, a dad that just passed away last May, and I was talking to her in June. She was asking me about that, and that's how the conversation started. She said, "What do you think about all this stuff going on?" And I just started telling her about some of my experiences growing up in Cary um, and how I've been pulled over by the police for lots of crazy things. But one, the craziest one was for laughing while I was driving. Laughing while you were driving? Laughing while driving. I was laughing. The police officer's in front of me. He pulls over, gets behind me. When I pass him, he said, uh, I noticed in my rearview mirror, you were back there laughing. I have a feeling you were laughing to me. I was like, what? I was with my friend, and we were like, can't believe this. Um, that was the most extreme example, so I told her about that, and just a lot of things like being following around in the stores, what you hear. Um, Myrtle Beach, I went down there with some friends. They were white friends. Um, we went to a hotel. We were playing video games. <clears throat> About two hours later, we get back to his house. Um, police officer knocks on the door and said, um, y'all were down at the um, arcade at the hotel down there. We're like, yeah, we were down there. Um, and the, he like singles me out. Um, what'd you do with all the money? I was like, what money? You broke into that video game machine, took all the quarters out. <laughs> First of all, that didn't happen. But he was saying I was the one that was doing it, even though it was like four of us, <clears throat> excuse me four of us in there. And that's just another example of being singled out. Um, but you got to have those conversations because I think a lot of people live in their own world. They don't realize what's really going on with um, other people. But she was very um, receptive to what I was saying. And she said she learned a lot and she's going to do, um, you know, try to do things to uh, do what she can to make everything better or make things better. Yeah, and I it's it's impossible to hear these stories and not, you know, uh, want to strive for change um, because uh, these are things that you know uh, me and and Mike Maniscalco obviously haven't had to deal with and um, and 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 aren't familiar with that. It that is where the 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 white privilege comes from, and so to 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 have these conversations. Uh, about these things and just learn about your experiences, your firsthand. These aren't stories or or parables or, um, you know, something that you saw in a movie or something. These are, these are real life experiences that happened. And I think um, the best way I think for, for everyone to connect, for us to connect is to, is to have these conversations, right? Because that's how you get to know someone on a deeper level is to just learn about their experiences and then learn how you can better from that. Yes. I agree wholeheartedly uh, with that. Um, I, I, I just, Mike, I just have to jump in. 
of all of the reasons that somebody could be pulled over. And then the thousands more that I'm sure that you think about that would never, ever crop into minor or Michael Smith's head. I, I believe it's written in a pretty important document somewhere, the pursuit of happiness that I didn't yes. realize that laughing in a car was an offense that you could be pulled over for. And that's, I didn't it, either. It's, it's, it's one of those stories where like when we have these conversations and you hear that it's, it sounds like that's out of a movie. And then when you hear yes. it's, it's real life, you know, there's, there's no, I'm trying to compute that and I can't. So I just, to me, the next thing is how do you, how do you stay so positive and so upbeat when you have to worry about, am I laughing too audibly or visibly in my car on my way to work or on my yeah. way home? I, I try to, um, I try to be the most positive person there is. Um, and I think that really helps um, not dwelling on the negative situations that have happened and thinking about what could happen. I just try to live in the moment or maybe a few steps past um, thinking positive um, what's, what's happening now and what's going to happen the rest of the day. Um, just try not to dwell on that negative and do what I can to stay, um, stay, to stay safe or lack of a better term yeah. when I'm out there driving. Yeah. And, and I think, I think we, we both agree that you're one of the most positive people that we've ever met. Um, and that, that obviously shines through in your, your passion for the sport, uh, and for the hurricanes and, um, and just for doing your part to, to, to grow the game. Yes. If I can share a quick story on sure. the positivity of Mike Whiting, the Canes, the Canes can be down a lot of goals in the third period with about four minutes left. Or and two goals in the second period, or I'm I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with six goals with six minutes left, and Mike is the guy going. We just need one. We just need one to get it going the other way, and, and one. That's you know that's that's why you know when I I hear the positivity that you have, that's the thing where it that to me is what is infectious in a good way, and I don't know if that's a word that we want to be using so much right now, but oh. you know what I mean. Um, but. Like those are the the things that that gets you to you know all right if this guy's loving this then I I want to be a a part of it or why does he love it that much and, and hopefully that is things where we've talked about you know having conversations getting things to the next level and maintaining that that positivity and uh, to to keep going that way when you look at at what the Hurricanes have done and uh, we'll we'll talk to Doug Worf a lot after this just so you know just. <laughs> Just for all of us and all of us involved, Doug, we do love you. Um, You're the best, Doug. <laughs> but at uh, at the same time, when you see how this organization responded to what you did, how you carved out a niche that was not there at all anywhere, I would imagine in the National Hockey League. Um, what does that say about this team? And of course, there's still a lot more that can be done. But uh, when you look at that, what does this say about the people in the organization who didn't just think, oh, well, we've got some guy here who's a, a super happy fan. It's uh, we've got some guy here and we need to let him know that we appreciate him. And, and now you are an ambassador for the team. What what does that say for the people that you work with here? And, and that this can not just happen in Carolina, but maybe in yeah. other teams in other sports you know, around the country. Um, definitely a great group of pay people. I know um, a lot of people know me for um, blowing my plastic horn, toot my own horn, <laughs> pun intended. Um, and it was back in maybe 2007, 2008. No, it was before that. 
we had it when we won the cup, like 2004, maybe. Um, I think it was actually Doug Worf um, or Brian Mean, one of the two, um, challenged everybody on the Storm Squad to, um, you know, come up with, you know, something outside of what we normally do. Um, there were a box of horns in the back room. So me and a guy named Tanner, who used to be on the squad, he's a, a professional mascot for a major league baseball team now. But we said, you know, let's do this. Let's do this. And I kept going. He didn't really do it. But that was something they get. They gave us the a push to, you know, find something else we can do to make it better, make the fan experience better. And also started to do it, making like balloon animals for the kids on the concourse. And, then, you know, they give you um, what you need. John Chase will say, tell me what you need. What do you need to, for this to happen or this to happen? I can tell him and it, and it gets done. Um, it's great to have that support from the uh, great people in the organization. And, uh, and another uh, great person in the, the Hurricanes organization um, is Larry Perkins, who we talked with earlier in this series. Um, have you had conversations with Larry over the years? I, I imagine you have just because he's been around for so long. You've been around for so long. And, and what sort of figure um, is he uh, for, for not only this organization, but the community as a whole? Um, I, met, I, I met Larry, I think it was back in, my goodness, 2000, 2001, um, before I was, you know, an employee and I was in line for tickets and Larry came over talking to everybody in line. It, I think it was for playoff tickets. That's what it was. He came over and he was like, man, this guy's pretty cool talking to the people waiting in line for the fans. He knew, and he knew people were going to be mad who didn't get tickets, but he stuck around to hear the complaints um, from people who didn't get tickets. And that, you know, I still remember that 18 years later that he did that. Um, he didn't run and hide. All these people can be mad. They didn't get tickets. They can come looking for me, uh, but he stayed out there and and took it. And that was that was that, that stuck with me. What kind of person he is? Yeah, and 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 yeah. the the stories that he would tell, um, you know, just as not only just as a kid growing up in rural North Carolina about, um, you know, the racism that he faced, but but things that have happened to him today the things that have ha have happened to him in the last few months that are these maybe maybe not so outwardly some that he shared were more outward than others but some just little subtly uh racist things that that he came across in daily life is is that something that uh i imagine uh still to this day in in 2021 um do you still come across those as well just little subtle things that um that you take note of that maybe that maybe we wouldn't. Um, yeah, I think I do. Um, maybe not as much as he did growing up. I think he's from Enfield, I believe. Right. Yeah, Enfield. He said, "Yeah, I'm gonna make him a shirt one day." So I'm <laughs> Enfield, straight up Enfield or something. Um, but he, <laughs> a lot of it, things I do see is on social media. People subtle suggestions, like if. A news story about some black people who got arrested for something. You'll see people type something like typical or the new, it seems the new word is thug. That's the new N-word, yeah. thug, that I've noticed. You know, in person, if I'm at a you know grocery store or something, I walk out in the parking lot from the store, people sit in the, you know, a lot of people get in the car and they just sit on their phones now instead of pulling out and giving a spot up. Um, 
But if I'm walking by car out here, click, they'll lock the doors. And I, that's been going on my whole life. That's the only thing I really notice nowadays. Mike, one of the things, and, and this is where when we talk about sometimes, you know, asking a question, I'm trying to come up and, you know, it's mine and Michael's job for a living. We ask questions and I'm trying to phrase things the right way. And I'm like, there's, there's just no way to say this other than it's, it might get to an awkward road, but is it, is it worse? And I hate putting this at your feet. Like you, you've got to speak for everybody here, but is it, is it worse when it's overt and right in your face where somebody is saying something or is it kind of more hurtful when people don't realize what they're saying is hurtful along those lines. Like it's just, this is, this is all they know. So that's what they go into as opposed to you can kind of, you know, brush off a jerk for being a jerk where it's kind of harder to brush off somebody who, you know, this is in their core. They don't realize exactly what's wrong with them saying what they're saying right now. Um, probably not right in your face, but like if, you know, behind the scenes overtly. Um, but I'll also call people out on it too. <laughs> and that gets a conversation started sometimes that yeah. maybe isn't so great. Yeah. But um, yeah. one thing, I, you know, I've been on um, a couple, you know, like a radio interview or something, or I was on a TV local news segment or something. And I read comments online saying, oh, he is... Um, He's, he's so well-spoken, so articulate, which I think that's a compliment. Yeah. But it's like, yeah. if it was a white person, would you say that? It's like you're not expecting me to be well-spoken and articulate. And that, that's more ignorance than racism, I think. But that's one of the things that people can look at and change. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that is just um, is ingrained in this in the system that we're that we're all striving to change it's it's that uh you know when we talk about systemic racism that's kind of what it is it's it's the system that's built um Mm -hmm. and and we 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 obviously need to overhaul it um it's we've been working on it for years and um you know it's we've still got a long way to go but um you know our hope is that in this podcast series look it's it's the, the two of us having conversations, but our hope is that these conversations spark other conversations or spark some critical thinking. Uh, because yes. I think when, 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 when people start to reflect on their personal experiences or the personal experiences yeah. of someone else, I guess that's really when, when change can start to come about when people realize, okay, there, that, you know, something is wrong here. Something is wrong and, and we need to change it. And, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, and I guess this is leading to my question is, what has been your view on that over the last year, seeing the nation reach sort of that boiling point um, of the conversation? Do you feel like there has been positive progress made? Um, but at, at the same time, I'm sure there's obviously still much more progress that we need to accomplish. I think uh, there's definitely been some progress made with the um BLM movement. I know they get some bad press from people saying they're like a terrorist organization, which is not the case. You may have a few people who do crazy things in the name of BLM, but that's not what it's about. If you look at a a Black Lives Matter rally, you'll see people of all races, families out there, just all kinds of people who 
you know, want to change for the better. Um, you do have the fringe lunatics um, with any group. Yep. Um, I think uh, that what's happened this past year is going to, may not seem like it right now, but I think a few years down, a few years down the road, it's going to pay more dividends. Um, and it's going to be a, I think it's going to steadily get better. I'm hoping at least. This to, is only the beginning. To what Mike brought up, though, have you noticed that instead of you engaging people in conversations, you told us the story of, of one of the parents of one of the kids that you're a, a teacher for came up to you. Have you, have you kind of noticed more people? Michael and I are, are talking to you today. And like we, we saw you during the course of a season, you know, at least a hundred times, but now we're, we want to have conversations. Have you noticed that at least this last year has sparked more for people to stop and talk as opposed to what maybe the, the past four or five years about, hey, you know, what's going on? Or when somebody asks, how are you doing? It's not just as a, a greeting, but they want to know, how are you doing this? Has that changed a little bit? So um, a lot of the engagement uh, with people not going out uh, like they have been before the pandemic comes from messaging, text message, social media messaging. And uh, I've been talking to this police officer uh, he reached out to see how I'm doing, and I talked to him about, you know, their challenges. And I said, you know, what can be done about the, what's going on with police in the world, or in the, mainly in the U.S., and now and in the past, it's been going on. He said, well, there's a problem, because if you report the ones who aren't doing what they're supposed to, there's retribution and blowback. Um, he said it'd be good for there to be a way you could report them anonymously, like a hotline or something where they don't receive any, uh, you know, blowback on that for reporting somebody. And it's gotta be a way to rid the departments of the uh, ones who aren't doing right. I mean, I'm friends with a lot of police officers and um, of course I don't think they'd ever do anything wrong. Um, and I know it's not all of them, but the ones that do, uh, the bad deeds, they give everybody a bad name. And they also put my friends who are officers in danger because by their bad acts, they're putting a bad look on the police and somebody just, you know, oh, I don't like them. Let's take them out. So they're not just hurting the people that they're hurting. They're hurting their own colleagues. It's it's along what you said. Not every group, you know, is is a the acts of a couple of, and I hate to even go down this, this road, the acts of a couple of people, but it's those that they don't understand the, the blowback is a great word that goes to the good people, the people who are trying to make a change, trying to yes. do their job and things that come down that line. Well, and again, they're, you know, they're working to enforce a system that's inherently broken. Yeah. And that's, and that's what we have to, to, to figure out how to fix because it's, it's the system that's existed for hundreds of years and it's built inherently on racism. So uh, if we can figure out how to fix that, you know, maybe we start making some more progress in the right direction. Uh, Mike, I, we, I would love to keep talking to you, but I know you have to get back um, oh. <laughs> to your job. I, and I, and I hate cutting the conversation off now because, uh, because this conversation has been fantastic. Yeah. Um, I've immensely enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. Um, it's been great 
speaking with you uh, because I think you just represent all that's good, um, not only just in Hurricanes fandom, but um, but in humanity as a whole. And uh, and I think we can take uh, a lot of inspiration from from what you said today and and what you're working to do to make this world a better place. I do appreciate it. Thank you. I don't know if you can see my hat I'm wearing. Yes. It's got a it's got the black hand and the white hand joining yes. forces. It's a good conversation starter. Yep. Speaking of that, um, people ask me about it in public, and I tell them, "Oh, it's a NASCAR hat," but it's the um, Bubba Wallace, and you know that that can start a conversation. And the first day I wore it in my classroom, one of the kids said, "Oh, look, that's my hand, and that's your hand." So you know, I think I'm in the position that you know, when they're young, you can teach them. Everybody's everybody's. Everybody deserves respect, and everybody should be equal. I I love that message right there, Mike Whiting. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I am going to to miss in the tunnel before the uh, the intermission interview. You walking by and telling me, "Let's get it going." Uh, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. <laughs> and uh, I I think that you need to coin that phrase for uh, where we're headed. Let's go, let's go, because you've got the let's right go. message to get us there, Mike. Thank, thank you. you, Big Mike. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Our thanks to Big Mike, Mike Whiting, for taking time out of his uh, work day to speak with us on his lunch break. Hopefully he got some lunch in. But, um, you know, one of, one of the things, uh, a lot of that, I, I, we could have kept talking with with Mike for for a long time, but obviously he had to get back to work. Um, but one of the things, you know, you take away from it, just as, you know, in talking to Larry, just these little instances of, you know, realizing just how far we still have to go as a society, whether it's stories from his childhood in Cary or today in a parking lot. It just these little things of, you know, okay, we, we still have a ways to go as a society. And, and, and hopefully these conversations help spark um, further conversations and action, ultimately. That's, that's the goal here. One of the thing, things that I will take out of this conversation, and uh, after we were done talking to Mike, I, I said it to him as well. Uh, I hope that somebody is listening to this. And if you're listening to this podcast in your car, and you, you are behind a police officer, and maybe you heard something that you were laughing at, uh, and you, you would, of course, the normal human reaction is to laugh, that you would then think, my goodness, is this going to get me pulled over? Um, and, and that, to me, these are certain things of the, the conversations we've had with Larry Perkins, with Nigel Wheeler, with Matt Moorfield, now with Mike Whiting, where... You know, you talk about it, things that we take for granted. I, I've never in my life thought that if I was laughing very loud in my car, that that would be a, a sign for me to get uh, pulled over. And, and I'm putting under normal circumstances. I mean, I know that certain things can always change, but just it's something that I've never thought about and would never even have on my radar of something that would draw the attention of, of police. And again, for people who are listening, don't, don't get into this and think that it's all police. It's not. Uh, Mike even said that there are far more good than outweigh the, 
they outweigh the bad. But it's it's one of these situations where if you hear this story and you have a conversation with a coworker, uh, a a student, or a you know fellow student. When I say student, a classmate, a friend, friend, yeah. family members. Even. Uh, N- Nigel Nigel Wheeler said one thing that that stands out the best to me about you know I have people who think they're my friend, but have you ever been to my house? Have you ever held my kids? Have we ever done that? And, and that's this is how you start breaking down those barriers. And and I'm really grateful that that Mike took some time out of his day. Uh, to join us to talk about this, uh, I his enthusiasm for hockey is unbelievable. And he's the he's the the folks that when you know they come up to me, the folks come up to me and say, you know, well, why should I watch hockey? I want to be like spend a game with Mike Whiting. <laughs> yeah, and, and his the sheer joy he gets out of watching the Canes play. Yeah, it's uh, he's he, he's truly cemented himself yeah. in this fan base and in the game experience at PNC arena over these last 20 years. But it, it also goes back to when somebody walks into this building and they see, we keep referring to this and it's a, a I think for me, the thread that I, I hope will tie positives of, of this podcast series together. When I see somebody who looks like me, then I believe I can do it. Yeah. And I'm sure that there are folks out there who are like, well, hockey is not for me because nobody looks like me who plays it. Well, it's, it's let's face it, it is not a, a sport that is, you know, predominantly uh, people of color. It is a predominantly white sport when you look at the athletes. But you can still be fans. You know, you can still look at it and say, well, if this guy's a fan, maybe, well, why does he like it so much? Because he likes the game. So maybe I like the game. And, and then in turn... You become bigger fans. Now you get more people interested in playing the game. Yep. Yeah. That's and, part. That's part of growing the game um, from a fan base perspective, and then obviously well, the goal is to grow the game yeah. uh, from a, a playing level perspective too. And Mike touched on that a bit, and the uh, the prohibitive cost yeah. that, that sometimes um, uh, that you find, and that's that's where the first goal program uh, that the Hurricanes and a number of other teams around the league. Um, that initiative is so good because it provides um, an affordable entry level into hockey. And once you become exposed to it, whether you're coming to a game or whether you're playing the sport, I think that's when you get hooked. Well, when you talk about inclusion with sports, you know, it, it starts at an early age. And one of the things for hockey is it is a hard sport to get into because skates, sticks, equipment, it all costs money. And, it changes every year. Equipment changes every year. Things that you you need to use to to get better. And this is where, if we're talking about the NHL amplifying and getting the opportunity to amplify more black voices, more diversity, you've got to find a way to make this game approachable for people to go play it. Mike has an absolutely great point. A big reason why you know basketball is is an easy draw for people everywhere. All you need is a ball and a hoop. Yeah. And if you find that, you can get a couple people to play. There's certain sports that have, are starting to price themselves out of, I, I hate to use the word, I hate to say pricing themselves out of inclusion. You know, it's many for me growing up, baseball, you needed a glove. And that was it. And a couple of kids with a baseball and, you know, one or two kids in the neighborhood have a bat. And now, you know, a glove, if I was trying to buy a, a real good glove today to play baseball, 
it's tough. That's just a glove. Yeah. You take a look at what hockey has to have in there, and that's where you need two gloves. <laughs> you need two gloves. You need skates, shin pads, a helmet. You know, you only needed real protective equipment in baseball if you're the catcher. Yeah. Uh, here it's it's a little different. And, Ice time's expensive. Oh, very much so. And of course, it's not always available. Right at random times. Yeah. So, uh, we thank Mike Whiting for taking the time to talk to us about his experience, about how the game is something that drew him into it, and how he is now in turn drawn other people into hockey and and help amplify his voice and others, literally as fans of yeah. this team. Yeah, we uh, we very much enjoyed that conversation with him. And if you enjoyed our conversation with Big Mike, let us know, uh, and we'll come back to you with another episode of Amplifying Black Voices next Monday. Talk to you then.